0: technical note there's an attempt to do something with two microphones so i sound like i'm skyping in from somewhere else but we're actually in the same room and didn't really know what to do to fix that but wanted to keep what we got with john uh it's interesting stuff so hopefully you can deal with that um thanks to everyone who listened to the last episode Interview with Mark Jurgis, and I just found out that Nungpak is actually playing in the Bay Area on September 16th at the Rickshaw stop. And there's another show that's a secret that I can't say now, but maybe by the time this is up, it'll be announced. Um, yeah, maybe I'll tag it on at the end if I if I think about it. Also wanted to mention that Tom Carter from Charlamagne, Spadrelor, uh many other projects, uh, fell into a bad state of pneumonia and asthma and is laid up in hospital in Berlin and is not going to be able to go back to work for a very long time. So there's some benefit shows going around and a website to donate to if you want to help out Tom. It's uh, helptomcarter.org. And yeah, let's get going. Hi, I'm in uh, the infamous Purple House of John Benson. Yes. Say hi, John. Hello, George. Yeah. I, I don't know why I force people to do that, but uh, <laughs> it's good to do just to establish like a vocal, a vocal thing.
1: Make sure the vocals are actually going yeah. through into the recording device.
0: Yeah. Um, and we were just talking about how back in the '90s. Free Radio Berkeley was actually run out of this house. Also, is it Radio Free Berkeley? Free
1: Radio Berkeley. Free Radio Berkeley is what they were calling it then, rather right. than Berkeley has no radio would be the Radio Free Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Oh right, right. Yeah. So rather than being free of radio, they decided to make, <laughs> make the t-shirts say at least <laughs> free radio. Since it wasn't really a, a actual legitimate thing, they could really do whatever they wanted to.
0: Right, and that was one of the first cases, right? Of well, I'm probably not the first case of pirate radio, but that was like a pretty uh no significant it, one
1: yeah yeah what it was the is the uh, Stephen dunnifer kind of the the head of the movement uh, kind of got syndicated in a funny way where he was challenging it and he went on all of these big talk shows and he uh, wasn't the greatest public speaker unfortunately <laughs> he's a good mumbler but he um, pushed it he, he actually pushed it by suing the Supreme Court uh, at the Supreme Court level, suing the FCC to see if they could do community-based micro-broadcasting uh-huh. legally and open it up a little bit. It was right before the Internet. It just basically right. just uh, like foreshadowed mid-90s? podcasting. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's see. I moved into this house in 92, uh-huh. and it was probably just a few years after that that the, the radio station started transmitting yeah. out of here.
0: Did they finally... Did he Did he live in the house, or he would just come in and do stuff? No,
1: I actually ha- didn't meet him for a long time. Okay. There was a huge community, and the radio station is partially uh, responsible for us being able to keep the house as it is. Really? It was a really dramatic, very exciting time period. Because Maybe I should
0: back up and explain Purple House has been here since the late 80s?
1: Uh, well, it used to be a pink house, okay. and it was... Uh, I, I moved in in 92, like I said... Um, I, I came to a party here that the band Flipper was playing at and I was a big Flipper fan and I pretty much just stayed and I'm here still today. That actually 20 reminds, years later.
0: Yeah, that reminds me that's kind of I think the context of when I met Rob Enbaum, We was like some how Flipper was brought up. He's like, "Oh, I'm in a flipper cover band with John Benson from me and My Forest. <laughs> I was like, really? You? Okay. And then actually, I think, was he in Tick War at some point? With Rob in Tick
1: War? Uh, we jammed with Andy a few times, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we I never performed. As, yeah, I remember just hearing about it. <laughs> yeah, he, Rob, yeah, no. I uh, was suffering with a broken neck when I met Rob, and I was had been in, in bed for months oh, in wow. traction. And uh, I had never... Met him <laughs> before, and he kind of came over and sat on the couch and had a like I'm learning how to play guitar, I check it out and he, like get really excited and start playing the D chord and the E chord and the D chord and oh. I'm, I'm just starved for any input at all yeah. so:
0: <laughs> Well, so actually it's interesting that he didn't play it because he, maybe he was just a singer in a band because he was in a was
1: Well, he a was band in a white boy rap band from Walnut Creek nice. Magnum Legendary. yeah yeah, and mark as well so. Mark was in Magnum? Yeah. Oh, I did not uh, know was that it? Also. Yeah, yeah. We
0: and should then play the Magnum
1: if we have. I know, at this point, definitely <laughs> to a give it some, to play some context would give be it relevant. It. And honestly, it could, have, could not have been the furthest from the A minor forest aesthetic, other than the fact that it was completely... I felt that it pushed the DIY uh, aesthetic a little further because Magnum was this trying to figure out rap music, but they were playing in donut shops and parks, and a Minor Forest had just stopped playing, like, the war... Like, uh, what was that place that we played? Uh Great American Music Hall? I
0: have at that, that show, that kind actually. Of stuff. Yeah, oh, that was you were? The last show you guys did?
1: Yeah. We, Who we played there a couple was, times. Three Mile Pilot Three Mile that? Pilot played so there.
0: So that was, like, 97, 98? Yes. <laughs> right around there?
1: <laughs> one of those two so years. One of those was years. Yeah,
0: so, what, backing up, so John... You may know his old band, A Minor Forest. Yes. And uh, the other band we're talking about with Rob Enbaum, called Hill of And uh, Evil Wicked Warrior.
1: Oh, yes. You and Mark
0: Small and your daughter, Mm Quinn. And Life.
1: And Life. And that
0: has not happened for a while. That's kind of stopped a while ago, right?
1: No. My daughter started writing songs, as all children do, when she was little. And I loved rocking out with her because there's nothing like rocking out with a little kid a wicked, for
0: evil wicked warriors, just a evil, a wicked for evil wicked warriors, to the dragons the
1: dragons they're back the girl very really, really back the dragons just are back the girl is really, really bad. The people they're back and we're going people they're back the girl is really back really evil, really, really evil or wicked Oh, Book shows <laughs> for that band. We played a lot of parties and uh, recorded two CDs, I guess. Yeah.
0: And never really toured, but just played around here. Right? We did the West Coast. Oh, we did a West Coast. Yeah. Part.
1: Okay. Yeah, we went to Disneyland. We didn't play Disneyland, but we went to <laughs> Disneyland. <laughs>
0: just the band vacation. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that's uh, what. And your current thing. You just were telling me. You put together a collection of songs that are maybe older four track recordings,
1: uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. and
0: and Dan Beckman is going to put it out on his label.
1: Yeah, he has a label. He lives in Maine. I think it's called Turned World. Yeah, I think that's it changes, right. Yeah, changes sometimes. Well, that
0: Burn Porter record, they did that record, right? They sure did. That, that was fantastic. I heard that fantastic. at, at your house before. Yeah, I heard that record.
1: Yeah, that was really awesome. He's, I think he put out a Bastard Noise or. Uh, some kind of man is the bastard or maybe related. For Christ, thing. the for Christ. I thing. think
0: that there is an Amps for Christ like yeah. uh, split with uh, space Duke of Space Corners or whatever. Yes. All his All his projects are the kind of variations on the same name.
1: Including the record label, it seems. Right, right. <laughs> he was um, in Practical Cockpit.
0: Right, and right. And that
1: was New Orleans.
0: That's right. So th- then, backing up off of that. So yeah, like we were saying, the house has been here for like 20 years or more and the what you're saying about community i think is interesting like uh there is a total community vibe here and i feel like it's kind of a, a, a stopping point for a lot of people like mm-hmm. people will just be mm-hmm. able to crash here traveling through town yeah um, it's just a welcoming kind of situation, and, and at the same time, like, I would feel, like, a little bit like I don't have enough privacy.
1: Uh-huh. Like, yeah. Like, that's an
0: issue for me. I, yeah. I had a lot of people at my house all the time. It was like, oh, this is cool, this is happening, I but I can't, like, you know, wander into my bathroom in, like, my underwear or whatever without worrying about someone seeing it. mm mm-hmm. you
1: know? I do. That's yeah. Right. I mean, I guess I'm just <laughs> uptight about that kind of thing. But, uh... No, we have a guest room in the attic where a lot of the touring bands... And my whole thing was coming from the DIY band experience. And when a minor forest was touring, we're talking 93, and there's no... It was the time period that you know, is when we were looking for pay phones, who has quarters... Uh, where's internet, that piece yeah. of paper that's folded up on the floor of the van with the phone number of somebody who might be able to lead us to the host house, who will then drive us to whatever the venue may be, which is probably a bar, and, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like, uh, asking directions at a 7-Eleven that you have just were so grateful to find. And pretty much my bent on the whole community thing with the music was because we had done so much touring and we had slept on so many floors of so many people's houses that uh, it was just that was the lifestyle, and that was going to be my mission in life, and that continued. So a lot of this house, besides putting on the shows, is also a place for the people to stay, or if they didn't get a show, they can hang out. So there's a lot There's a lot of, uh, what would you say, uh, influence in the whole DIY aesthetic into what this house has become. Right. And it's not, well...
0: So That's sort of like a cross of, like, was a DIY thing, which you're talking about, and then sort of like a general Berkeley kind of hippie thing. Yeah. So there's kind of both those things, and they coexist in a good way here, yeah. it seems like. But they managed to coexist.
1: It's been a struggle in the past, because I maybe you remember this also, is that it there was much more divisive politics back... I feel that there's been a big change within the last few years, um, where there was the whole riot girl thing the 90s thing the straight edge thing and and me personally growing up uh, when i moved to california i I'd, I'd, I'd never heard of a vegetarian and i you know only lived with white people in the farmlands of ohio and i come here and my mother is a lesbian with a purple mohawk and a motorcycle, and my, I'm living in a tent and has two babies, <laughs> little kids. Uh, and my 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 whole world went from living with my dad, who is really into bikes, beers, and boobs, like like Harley culture, to living with this uh, separatist lesbian community which didn't allow men, and it was very, uh, I don't want to use the word divisive, but it was trying to form a whole new identity, and it was uh, like second wave feminism that was it did exclude trying to create women-only spaces. And I didn't understand that when I was 13, coming into puberty, trying to understand anything. <laughs>
0: That's really interesting because we were kind of on this tangent before about the alpha male thing and how we, like, we're not alpha males. Our other friend we're talking about, we don't need to name him, not an alpha male in terms of, like, when, you know, initiating anything with dating and things like that. And I kind of had a similar thing, too, where I felt like, because I went to a Catholic all-boys school and I just didn't really have a lot of contact with girls in that time period where it's very important and informative to do that. But also I, you know, found out about Riot Girl around the same time and I had this really weird removal of like, yeah, I'm kind of like a feminist, but I'm a feminist in a place where there are no women. And like, I don't know how to represent for that <laughs> or like, you know, understand and in, you know, the context of like a Catholic school. Yeah. Where it's like you, I was like, I know about Bikini Kill, but I don't know how to, who I can talk to about that here. <laughs> There's like no way to really, there were some people that I came up with that were like punks and like, they were huh. mostly skater kids and they, there was a little bit of a punk scene in San Jose that. I kind of dabbled into or kind Uh of, I didn't feel like I was really one yet, but, um, What about
1: the, what about the straight edge part of that? Did that come with the riot girl part or were you a straight edge riot girl at that point? You
0: know, I don't know if there was a lot of straight edge riot girls. (laughs) Is that like a, was that a big thing at the time? I think that, uh, for me it was more like I just never really got an interest in it and, uh, it just kind of never appealed to me, um, yeah, for because you, you're also sober, and you've pretty much been sober your whole well, life. Well, that was
1: directly from living with an alcoholic father. So right. I, I was in, intensely shy, and, and we were moving around constantly, and he was always getting DUIs and fired, so we would end up in another town. And I came straight from that to California, where it seemed like anything is possible, mm-hmm. And I got used to my dad saying, Hey, John, here, have a beer, have a shot of this. And I was, I, I was always like, Oh, dad, no, no, dad, no. And that continued through the rest of my life to this day. I still right. have never been drunk. That's
0: you know, interesting because <laughs> I think when I talked to Nate, a little bit behind his being sober, I think was similar. Uh, the Nate Denver, I don't think I ended up on the, the thing, was just like, you know, being really around good. an alcoholic person yeah. when you're a kid and then seeing sort of the behavior that can actually turn someone. I fully a uh, 180 against it. Yeah. And some people just end up becoming alcoholics also. Mm-hmm. But I n- that's not really, I don't really have that much of a history of that in my family, but um, I can totally understand that being, you know, enough of a motivator for some people. Mm. Um, so, but it wasn't like your relationship with your dad was strained then, or was it actually okay?
1: No, it was okay. It's just that he was one of those kind of distant, uh, closed down uh he he midwestern dude m- midwestern yeah, yeah. It's, it's very typical but i didn't know what was um he he lied a lot (laughs) he was constantly lying my he would come home with a a model a ford and it was beautiful and he's like this is your first car and then he'd sell it like two days later (laughs) or like i was supposed to do this cross-country trip but i bought a harley davidson i took it out there and we were gonna fix our harleys up together and do this cross-country trip and he sold it but he told me that he was looking forward to the trip so i spent two years saving up money and and just, like, the whole Harley culture wasn't necessarily...
0: Like, you go to, like, Sturgis and stuff? I,
1: I, I went to Sturgis all the time. Like, I, I saw a ZZ Top there. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, I have this huge affinity for, like, the whole male, bearded, guns, uh, womanizer thing, but at the same time, uh, a direct rejection of that, too. And it's it's uh, because my dad was my audience gro- like all the way up until he died. Like... A lot of what I did, including being in a rock band, was to show, like, I thought that's what my dad wanted for himself you know he played he played guitar and he yeah. he was really into the ladies and all of that but i did it completely wrong you know i i took the music very seriously and i wrote complicated uh parts with cello and quiet parts and like this um i was like i'm going to be really smart about this my dad's going to totally love it and i'm going to play for him and we played at a all ages venue in ohio he showed up totally drunk and they wouldn't let him in i had to explain that it was my dad <laughs> Uh, he thought this place was, uh, ex- elitist, and he just walked across the street to the bar while it's we like played. Speak
0: in Tongues or something in Cleveland? Speak in Tongues, yes. Yeah, that yeah. was it. That was it. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Now, that I'm even trying to piece together, how did your parents even get together?
1: That <laughs> my mom like was very vulnerable. young. Yeah, she yeah. was very young and sheltered, uh, from... I'm flying out there tomorrow morning to go mm-hmm. to this house that my grandfather built, and, uh... Oh, yeah, that was actually something I did want to talk about, was the fact that I'm going out to see my grandmother. She's probably not going to be around much more than another month. your mom's style. mom. And this is my mom's mom, and she's 95, and yeah. she lives in the house that my grandfather built. Wow. And every time I go out there, I admire something new about this house. He over, over, over built this house. But to look at it, it's just this one-story modest brick house. But the studs are like six inches apart, and the plaster work is immaculate, and the electrical work is just overdone with really thick wires. And and as I grow up, I (laughs) appreciate these things. You do
0: wiring in the house. Owning this house and fixing up this
1: 100-year-old house constantly, I am over again and again and again – reaffirming that my grandfather was a genuinely good guy he by the time he was 40 he had overbuilt this house he had set up a retirement fund for my grandmother he paid for his own funeral he had everything by the time he was my age now uh he had everything set for my grandmother so that when he did pass away which he did in his 40s she was set for the rest of her life in this very modest existence and I mean, she also did have a job, um, and she has a retirement from that. But it was just at the library down the street. So that was the environment my grandma, my mom grew up in was uh, just like this really midwestern. Uh, my grandfather was kind of the figurehead of that area. So as as I get older, I realize how much my grandfather was involved in building this community he built. A large part of what mommy Ohio is and so going back there is constantly reaffirming this part of me that I never really met because he was gone by the time I was of personhood <laughs> so anyway go I'm gonna go back there tomorrow with my daughter we're gonna fly out there we're gonna see my grandma and it's gonna be its it's I'm looking forward to it it's gonna be kind of heavy and yeah. is your mom gonna be out there she's, she's already, there. already there yeah she's so. already there
0: to get past I mean that's a pretty impressive age to get to mm-hmm. 95 yeah but um that's interesting because that's like a kind of a patriarchal model that is very different it sounds like than your dad
1: oh yes which is, you, oh, yeah. you
0: had sort of this idealized uh you know midwestern norman Rockwell kind of mm-hmm. grandfather yeah and it's kind of hell raising hell raising <laughs> <dad>.
1: <laughs> yeah my dad the first time he met my mom's dad my, my mom's dad was practicing rope tricks out in the backyard. He was spinning a lasso. So my dad comes walking up the driveway, and my grandfather lassos my dad and pulls him up. <laughs> so my grandfather used to, like, ride on the backs of horses and jump through lassos and stuff like that <laughs> when he was a, a youth. When he was that kind of reminds me
0: of, like, um, I, I'm not done with this book. I've got this Alan Lomax biography. Oh, cool. And do you know about, like, his father was actually... A collector of cowboy songs, and kind of had some legitimacy of being like, you know, a Texas boy or whatever. When uh-huh. he went to Harvard and like really? took folklore classes, and so yeah, there was like the whole precedent for Alan Lomax wanting to impress his dad.
1: Oh yeah, being like, Very you know, like I want to
0: like live up to the the Lomax name, you know? Yeah, as being a collector of folk musics. Right. So it's it's real interesting what a... how we do all these things to like kind of appease. Yeah, that thing of what you're saying, like having your dad as your audience. Excuse me. No, that's fine. Let's we'll do it. We'll cut around that. Okay. Cut around it. Cut it out. Cut it out. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, I, I can kind of relate to that. Even though I didn't really feel like I shared my music stuff with my dad that much. Actually, like right before, you know, like he passed away a couple years ago, a uh, year and a half now. Um, I'd sent him an, an email like because I did that Reese Chatham. 200 guitar thing. I'm like, this kind of seems like something an Asian parent might like because it's at Lincoln Center. So I did kind of like send that out there and just kind of like feel, test the waters a little bit. Like, you know, it's weird to not feel like you can share some of that stuff. And like, I just, weirdly, my mom, I just kind of called her randomly. The weird thing is, like, I heard this interview with Yoko Ono, and I was like, I should call my mom. <laughs> I really had that thought. I don't know what it is, like, Asian mom thing, but uh, I call my mom, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm at Stanford. I'm about to do this uh, radio show at Stanford, and she actually, like, bothered to listen, which I thought was very Uh weird and not really a typical behavior that either of us would do. I would never normally tell her I'm doing something, and she would never normally listen, but I think she's kind of realizing, like, oh, you know, this is not a phase. Like, this Uh is what he does. Uh I maybe should pay a little bit of attention Uh to it. So it's kind of nice to bridge that a little bit. Uh Uh-huh with your, with your parents, um, and you so your mom's pretty supportive of everything you've been doing.
1: Oh, intensely, yeah. And she's,
0: so when you came out here, you were 13 and it was in the Bay Area, this, like, lesbian
1: commune? Uh, well, she was dating, well, yeah, I, I, I was young enough to be totally confused by everything. So I'm not exactly sure what was happening. I do have... It, it was it was difficult because she was living in some kind of church housing. Uh, she spent a couple of years living on Mount Tam in a tent with my brother and sister. And they had a pet deer named Sugar Plum. <laughs> and uh, by the time I came out here, they were in a church housing in San Leandro. And so um, when I was in high school, basically... I was absolutely terrified of women. <laughs> I was terrified of talking to most people. You know, I ended up with one friend that I stuck with loyally, uh, and spent a lot of time kind of a, a, as trying to find a hole somewhere to crawl into most of the time. But I was also really inspired. My mom was lovely and wonderful, and I was very inspired by all that she was doing—arts and she had exciting lifestyle and all of that. But
0: what was the church that they were a part of? It was a Unitarian church. Awesome. Aggressive yeah. Like yeah.
1: Church. Yeah. Is that
0: still part of her deal? She's still not, well, really, not
1: really. No. That anymore. was. That was kind of more about her willing to manage this house with a bunch of other families. And okay. So ever since I came to California, I've been living in group housing. That's right. always been my. Uh, I, I almost oh, wouldn't know otherwise. You but,
0: lived at Barrington.
1: Oh yes, that was a huge part of my life.
0: That's probably something that doesn't get talked about too much. No. We should probably address some of that.
1: The weird thing is that nobody knows what that is.
0: Yeah, I, the weird thing is I lived in that place years after it had been converted into just private housing.
1: I forgot about that. Was and it, it Huddlestone Hall? Uh, I
0: forgot the name of it, too. And I just, like, there was no kitchen. Well, there's, like, a communal kitchen. It was just, like, rooms. Like, it was, like, a boarding house in a weird way. Yeah. I, I mean, I was so long ago I wasn't paying much rent. But, yeah, uh, I remember other people coming over and being like, I saw Primus play in your basement, and I took acid, uh-huh. like in your back, in your yard, and like yeah. So you we were there for what a year?
1: No, I was there all the way. I was there for th- two years in the summer, oh. and I was of the group of people who were suing to keep the place from getting shut down. Oh, okay. And actually, it, the lawsuit got reduced alphabetically, so it was John Benson versus the people of California. <laughs> you have that, like, that like on your
0: record. So Barrington was a part of the co-op student housing system of yeah. UC Berkeley uh, on the south side of campus, and they were the first ones I think to get like thrown out. And I heard like people were paying their rent in drugs at the time.
1: There was the the building was the first student co-op. Uh, uh, the military built the building in the first place, and it was the largest in the world. Uh, student co-op. And there was almost 200 people, 200 students living there who would, you know, cook dinner together and study together. And there was a huge downstairs open, kind of cafeteria style, but everything was just trash. It was like benches that were broken. And but, it, but like, so did that kitchen. start
0: in the 60s? Was it part of that era? It was in the 40s. It it was, oh, it's been yeah. around. It started in the 40s. So the co yeah. system dates that far
1: back. Well, well, I'm not the military too clear housing. on that. The it military was, housing, might be. Yeah, I'm not too clear on that. I know that the building itself was built long before then. It became a co-op, um, which my grandfather, who I was just speaking very highly of, was a big part of. The, in World War II, there was a huge movement towards cooperativism, okay. and the governments was pushing it. The, the whole Victory Farm okay. uh, stamps, uh, you know, give give your pennies to the bullet making factories and. Right. Rosie the Riveter and all of that kind of stuff was a part of a cooperative uh, farm, having your own community protect itself through shared resources oh, that's really interesting, and my that grandfather that, yeah. yeah it was it was a really big movement in World War two and out of that came the student cooperatives which was uh, students bonding together buying a house living collectively buying their food doing the chores keeping it running to live affordably and, and be able to Berkeley had many 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 co-ops uh, there's the banks and the groceries and there's a lot of uh, Different, the anything you can imagine had its version of a cooperative system. So that uh, influenced me a lot when I first got out here. And I didn't really know much about it, and I didn't know that my grandfather was so involved in it until very late after I started to understand what it was. I found all of these old pamphlets from the 40s all over my grandma. I just came home with a couple of were sitting over on my bookshelf just last month.
0: So I was like, yeah, like you could start a co-op, to uh, keep America going, to keep America strong. Yeah. like, It was like, <laughs> which yeah. should not be the message that I think anyone in Berkeley would be to endorsing <laughs>
1: up now. It's right. That's ironic. Yeah. It is pretty funny how that works. It's very ironic. There was a full-blown riot that happened when they were closing it down, where dumpsters were set on fire, and police with shields came out. And it was supposed. Do you know? Do you remember the band, the Beatnigs? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh,
0: well, that's Michael Fronte's. <laughs>
1: Michael Fronte's. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, right. Okay, of course. Um, so they were playing at our uh, poetry reading, and it was... The beatnigs were all about kind of this industrial bang hubcaps together and use a grinder and, and rap about how television is evil. And it really riled up. Like, we took almost everything in what was the kitchen and just started smashing it and banging on the doors and breaking holes in the windows. And... It turned into this, like, huge scale. <laughs> a lot of people came to it, a lot of big, uh
0: That's hilarious when you think of, like, Michael Franti's All Peace and Love all the time. Right. Yeah, like, he was in this weird proto-industrial band, um, which is, you know, those things can coexist, It's fine. I mean, just as, like, we're talking about the irony of, like, you were in this situation that's kind of notoriously known for, like, its drug scene, and Berkeley, I think, always has had a reputation for that. But uh, we are talking about how you and I being sober people, uh, how that can be a weird, it, you know, it can be a weird social impediment in some ways to be sober around people that are partying because they feel guilty around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though, like, I feel like I'm trying not to be judgmental as much as I can be. Yeah. A lot of the time.
1: Um, well, my 15-year-old self just is dying for uh, being accepted and wanting to be involved in any way I can. And inherently feeling, and you can totally understand this, but inherently Uh, feeling... I'm a comic.
0: (laughs) I think I want acceptance, yeah.
1: But for some reason, just feeling like you're going to always be an outsider. You know, like for whatever reason it is, I think that you and I are friends, and I'm friends with the people in this house, and I've been friends with... Because for whatever reason in their life or their genetic makeup as it is, they are just going to be an, an outsider to some degree... And uh, that wasn't cool before Pearl Jam. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's like there wasn't... uh...
0: Pearl Jam is something cool. I don't know.
1: (laughs) I remember going to the very first meetings when Gilman was starting to become a thing. And it was the idea of having an all-ages show space was really the bottom line, and that's where I agreed with it. But at the time, they had Thursday, Thursday, family theater, a movie night where they got a projector on Fridays. The It wasn't a punk club. It was a uh, dare I say it, community space but it was specifically with the agenda of all ages non, non-drinking uh, so that you can bring Uh, a 13-year-old there and feel like this is a really creative... and, And I was like hook, line, and sinker. This is what I wanted to be part of because it was all about what I loved. What Barrington did for me was provided a space... I, I'm not going to call it a safe space, but it was a space where people <laughs> like it was, yeah. an inclusion space. <laughs> inclusion, <yeah. laughs> I felt very included with all of these freaks, just kind of pushing each other to be more of a freak and do more and more extreme things, pushing and pushing and pushing. And I felt really, really nurtured in that environment. Um, and I, you know, have lots of theories as to why, because where I came from was not. Safe, <laughs> you know, like the whole Harley culture, like people doing speed and fixing their uh, carburetors on the kitchen table, and then driving their, you know, just there was no stability living with my dad at all. So in this, the stability was the fact that we were uh, all an audience to what we came up with in an extreme environment, and that what could it, it wasn't necessarily just music and art. It was uh, your philosophy and your outlook on the world, and and people would just ran with it at a very young age.
0: You never lived in San Diego, but
1: you... I never did live in San Diego. But you just
0: were in a band with people from San Diego, so you just ended up having a lot of connections. Yeah, the other
1: two guys in a minor forest were from San Diego, so we would go down there and play maybe more than we would play locally here. Do you have any sort of
0: stories about the formation of that group?
1: The band? <laughs> yeah. It's
0: like when did that all
1: come That's at, embarrassing. Or? I don't know. You know it I'm involves not? a hot tub and an ex girlfriend oh, mother really? of my daughter and yeah, all sorts of stuff. first a minor forest show uh we had mimes we (laughs) we played the the whole idea was to do two notes we played the same two notes over and over and over again and the song was called god is fabulous and we had people dressed up on stage with us who were you know that was the very first time we all played together and it was going in with like this is some people are most people are going to see this as the most horrendous thing that they have ever experienced and being thinking that that is so great and the first uh jay who does lesser the first time i ever saw somebody on his knees on the floor with a bunch of pedals all plugged into each other making this horrific noise he was the guy (laughs) doing it Uh, and he went into it with the exact same i hate the his first release was i hate me yeah yeah, yeah. and that was so beautiful to me i i I felt that that was so liberating and so wonderful to be able to do it with such confidence that this is going to be horrible (laughs) yeah yeah
0: it's kind of nihilistic, I guess, in a way, but it was like I don't say like lesser is like Gigi Allen or anything at all. No, yeah. It's just like it's just like kind of a humorous way to be like you know have self-loathing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Which uh,
1: we can segue into the bus at this point because yeah. there's a lot of
0: well, yeah, feeling like like feeling like you are enabling other things to happen, maybe at expense mm. to your own yeah uh, financial well-being or or psychic well-being. But yeah. um, what was the first thing that got the bus going was it just seeing that there was one for sale
1: uh i had done a tour with Hale zuchus in an ambulance and the ambulance we were tinkering with vegetable oil and i I had been trying to run diesels on vegetable oil since a minor forest and it was uh kind of like i was looking for a diesel and my dad had just died Mm -hmm. and um i had just seen the bus after I got back from this Hale Zucas tour, Hale Zucas fell apart we just played with friends forever on the whole country they broke up, it's I like, it felt like everything had just, and my dad just died and my girlfriend of six years just broke up with me and I had found out that she was cheating on me the entire time we were going out and I just felt like, okay, this is the bottom of the barrel You bottomed. I, yeah, I totally <laughs> so bottomed <laughs> Everything is over I, was, yeah. I, wanted, I, I wasn't staying in my bedroom, I was sleeping in my van in the ambulance, so anyway, I, think, I was just, I was in a horrible horrible state and the fact that my dad just died felt like I lost the entire childhood what little childhood I had because he was the only person who actually witnessed my childhood because was just him and I so I didn't have the possibility of doing these Harley trips or the possibility of him, him being a, the person that I thought of him as and was defending him as being a certain person he was gone and not only that, but I found out that he had used my driver's license and got DUIs on my driver's license. He had used my social security number and damaged my credit rating. He had done the same to my brother. He had gotten credit cards out in my grandmother's name and she had been dead for a long time but anyway she w- he was living in the house that he grew up and he moved back in with his mom when she was dying and she he married somebody who was only five years older than me who was basically it, all of these horrible things were coming up and uh the house he had gotten a third mortgage on and it got repossessed so i learned that not only was uh he probably was killed in a bar Suddenly overnight, and I had to go out to Ohio and get his things. So, I, all I knew was that I had to go save what little was left of what Your was childhood. my dad, my childhood. Yeah. And that would meant his guitars that he taught me to play guitar on, possibly some photos, maybe some old furniture of my grandparents, my wonderful grandfather's electronic testing equipment. You know, all of this nostalgia that I had, I had to go save it because it was being thrown away. So I saw that a 40-foot bus that the Oakland Police Department had gutted and covered with sheet metal, and it was just this ugly behemoth uh, that was going to be converted to vegetable oil and driven to Ohio cheap, and we were going to save all of my dad's stuff. And I say we, but it was actually just me. This was what I was going to do. And it was just like, what was that uh, Herzog film, Fitzcaralda, who was pushing the ship over the mountain? I was in that frame of mind, <laughs> and uh, a lot of friends who saw the bus were like, "This is like a giant warehouse. Let's have a party in here. Let's have a send-off show. Let's, uh, hey John, your birthday is coming up. Uh, Evil Wicked Warrior plays in front of Mama Buzz inside of this giant bus. It's going to be awesome." And it was. It was really really fun. And uh, a bunch of people were like, "Hey, I want to go on this trip." Um, it kind of organically formed its own uh, this Noah's Ark <laughs> or whatever. So I installed solar panels, and I took all these wheelchair batteries and put them under the floor, and set up a PA system. And we had so we had this little PA it was running on vegetable oil. It's just all of this stuff kind of started coming together, and people little by little started joining in on this uh, ark. Drove it around the country. Did get my dad's stuff. We would pull into these little towns. Uh, the people that were with me we we were getting closer and closer and closer uh the core group of people when one person would speak everybody was sitting in a circle and we 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 were just like this really tight family at this point that we were on this trip
0: yeah i actually like wanted to touch on that too yeah it's really, it really is really was like a thing that people knew about even up and down the west coast And, like, kind of, there's people that are kind of affiliated with that. When I think of, like, oh, yeah, those are, like, bus kids. There's, like, Uh a lot of a scene around that. Like, I guess, like, people like Dalton and, like, the the East Bay people and, like, Oshon.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, like, John
0: Lando, obviously, and Dave. Yeah. Like, the only people that know how to drive it are you and Dave and John moved (laughs) to New York, so...
1: It's, it's, it's a 14-foot tall, 40-foot long warehouse on wheels, and it's got no windows except for the windshield, so I couldn't—it was, it was a death trap, honestly. And we would pull into a very, very small town where nothing was going on and have a show. And people were like, what the hell is this? And they were either like, get the hell out of my town, or they're like, thank you, uh, Vision of Good. <laughs> Let me join your clan. <laughs> yeah. And that ha- both both happened every single night as we drove around the country for a few months. and just kept going and going and going, and I didn't really want to go home. Like there, was, It just was this wonderful experience to continue.
0: So the first trip was actually on the way to go get your dad's stuff? Yeah. Booked, was it around INC?
1: Uh, No, that, that, was that was the second trip. Second time yeah, the first it. time we went and it's I it needed made it. to get my stuff. I know. <laughs>
0: it's amazing, it made it that many times. How many times across country did this? A
1: couple of out? times, but we left Three. it in Miami. Yeah. We went to INC. Uh, That was just amazing. Uh, it was it International
0: Noise Conference? International we Noise by Conference. Together by like Rat Bastard and some other people. Yeah. It was mostly rat. Yeah. It was mostly rats. thing. And a you. lot
1: of people came with us to that and. Oh, just every day was, uh, jail would say crises, crises. Why are there so many crises? <laughs> because there were, so things were catching on fire constantly. People were falling out of, the, you know, just people just like peeing off the roof or, uh, you know, there's there she is naked on the roof again. Why are all these cars swerving into me? It's like, oh yeah, she's naked on the roof again. Um,
0: she being, I'm guessing, uh, I don't know, Jesse.
1: No, um, oh yeah, she she was, naked yeah, a lot. yeah, she did. Uh, her, her, uh, Dylan. <laughs> Dylan was <laughs> naked a naked. lot. Just because they were Rob naked, was uh, <laughs> naked on the
0: on the record covers, but um.
1: Well, basically, I took it all on the road, so it was uh, a little mini Barrington Purple House on the road. And little we Ken Casey,
0: Mary Prankster.
1: Little bit, yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: which is, I don't know if that how much of an influence that is for you, any of that '60s kind of stuff. The
1: the bus whole thing came together really like on its own. Mm-hmm. I it wasn't necessarily. Um, something that I was going to continue at all. And I didn't think that... I I wasn't thinking like, hey, we're going to be the Merry Pranksters at all. That didn't cross my mind until somebody in Pennsylvania was like, uh, oh, yeah, (laughs) we pulled on some old lady's front lawn. I was trying to turn around because I couldn't get through a tunnel because we were too tall. And I ended up doing like a five, six-point turn and I was on somebody's lawn and she was like, what are you? What are you? And this old hippie (laughs) came out of his house and walking over there and he like put his arm around her and he was like... It's a magic bus. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty amazing experience all the way through. I really um, am grateful that it happened. It's still it's still kind of happening, but it right. just drained every penny that I had, and yeah, still so is. And in the
0: and the kind of the capper to that first bus is what it broke down near Michigan
1: we were we had done a series of shows up the east coast into detroit we had done five shows in in detroit on the same day there was this giant flash thunderstorm people off the streets were jumping into the bus with the doors wide open we played in the abandoned train station the police were constantly following us the, the people were doing drugs and there's all sorts it was this, it was a day that Being the only sober driver, the continual uh, designated driver that I am, I was driving this group of people from 60 to 13 all over Detroit who were on for the show, and and, uh, I hadn't slept. I was a little bit stressed out. I'm like, please arrest me. Somebody please arrest me. Like, I really need a break. Will somebody please just throw me in jail? This is completely wrong
0: like daring
1: the universe to stop you <laughs> exactly <laughs> and we were driving from detroit the sun had come up uh we were driving uh through a town we were, dri- we were going to chicago and we the bus just kind of slowly petered to a stop and i coasted off the freeway in a little town called albion and pulled over and this half-naked girl came up who I never saw before in my life and was like, are we going back? And she gave a cross street in Detroit somewhere, and I'm like, well, we're a few hours away from Detroit right now. We're going to Chicago. She's like, you're from California, right? And I was like, yeah, are you going to California? Yeah, we're going to go to California eventually. Oh, good, I've always wanted to go to California. All right, having no idea who was on the bus with me at this point, I think that, honestly, the bus just knew that I psychically was completely about... To just <laughs> yeah. crack, so the bus stopped working. It's in like your TARDIS. Yeah, <laughs> you're,
0: it, it's, you're in tune with it. Yes, um, and then the so it sounds like the story that happened after that is like it was actually cheaper to just get a property to park it on I, than to have it in a, in a garage. Yeah, someone would just charge you. So much more money to keep
1: Half it of Al- Albion's a really cute town with three rivers, brick roads. Half of it is a ghost town. So I bought a house for $4,000 and left the bus in Albion. And that was a few years ago. And now I'm here. And uh, the goal may still be, maybe not, I don't know, to go back and fix the whatever blue. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> when
0: you had like people just go kind of house sit for the Albion house, right, basically?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Krumar recorded his album there. Uh, Rachel, who lives in that room over there now, uh, apparently had been living there with her twin sister and Jason. I had no idea. And so I and I wanted it kind of to be a, a, a the dream was that all of these touring bands that are going across the country, and I sympathize, can stay in this house. The key will be hidden. Just go there. Do what you need to do. It's a really cute town. Swim in the river. Uh, record an album (laughs) and it kind of did you know people came up from chicago to stay in the house who needed to get away uh electricity and water was all turned down and everything but um it kind of took a turn sour where i was the I, i created this fake utopia but it really was attached to my bank account and people did things in the house that damaged the property and i was getting fined for it and the neighbors were like what the hell is going on with this house and so i had to answer to the city and i was the person that had to answer to everything so you know whenever something would break on the bus i had to fix it whenever something in this house i am the for a long time my name was on the insurance i had to be the landlord you know and that was not who I wanted to be. And still, that's not my goal in life.
0: But you are by default sometimes the most responsible person around. Yeah, at least
1: I the most sober see. one. yeah.
0: That's what seems crazy about it. But I like that phrase a fake utopia that is draining my bank account. <laughs> I totally can relate to that. Yes. Also. <laughs> I think that we all often have.
1: George, is it Zum or Zoom?
0: I like to say it Zum, like umbrella. Yeah.
1: On the radio today they said Zoom.
0: I didn't correct him. I don't okay. I never correct people. Okay. I kind of don't care. I kind of want it to be amorphous. Well, I kind of feel like what you're saying about fake utopia, I definitely relate to and um, that's a hard thing to deal with because I mean, you're still putting your energy into all these things. Mm-hmm. And so and what is the trade-off when you you know, are like you could have put a mortgage on the house or whatever. Like, you know, you could have, like, gotten equity out of being a house, but you're like, I'm going to sell it back for a yeah. dollar to the co-op. Yeah. And not feel like... Where, I don't know. Where a, there's a certain line of, like, where selflessness and, like, being helpful to people can be damaging
1: mm-hmm. to
0: yourself. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you seem like you've hit that with the bus a couple times.
1: Oh, yeah. I've hit that with many things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my job included. You know, like, I fix wheelchairs for a living, but I also created the job. I created the whole emergency repair program that the city of Berkeley pays for and it's such little money like I make very very little money doing that but it's exactly what I want to do and I would do it for free you know if somebody's wheelchair is broken on the street you know like who wouldn't want to go over and fix their wheelchair so I taught myself how to fix all these wheelchairs and I have lots of resources and I actually get paid to do it So it's part of that original ethic of creating the life that you want to, um, not just the life that you want to live, but the life that you want to use as an example for other people that this world is possible.